Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. you to chant with me and the chant is Yad Elohim Bakol. Yad meaning hand. Elohim is is God in nature, the sense of the natural world that's far bigger than we are and that we can't, we couldn't have invented if we wanted to and Bakol is in everything. So depending on anybody's theology, what could Yad Elohim Bakol mean? The hand of God is in everything, or Elohim, because the G word is too limiting. It's too American and too English and too tight. How would you go with that? Yes. The Ein Sof, the, the infinite, permeates everything. That's a good one. Does anyone have another way with that? Anybody? That separation or difference is an illusion. Another good one? Separation or difference is an illusion? Because we remember most of Judaism functions at the level of metaphor. So it, part of spirituality, and what I'll be talking to you about Jewish spirituality through the lens of my teacher, Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi, Reb Zalman, is the sense that if we stay in the Peshad, in the basic level, that we don't get the nourishment that we can get when we go to the level of metaphor and we go beyond that even. So you'll see as we work together today how that works. Here's the chant. Yad Elohim Elohim Bakol, Yad Elohim Bakol, again. Yad Elohim Elohim Bakol, Yad Elohim Bakol, Elohim Bakol, Elohim Bakol, Yad Elohim Bakol, again. Elohim Bakol, Elohim Bakol, Yad Elohim Bakol, and then it goes, Yad Elohim, Yad Elohim, Yad Elohim Bakol. So one of the principles of spiritual education it has been validated by science which is that when we chant together, our, our autonomic nervous system quiets down and we're connected in some way just through the sound of our voices. Even if the intention of the, of the chant isn't front and center, it's that experience of gathering, connecting, and stilling. Now, Reb Zalman, I want to tell you a Reb Zalman story. 
because he was really diverse. Does anyone here have their own Reb Zalman story? Yes. <laughs> I suspected as much. So I'll, I'll get to you, okay? And we'll, we'll do that because when I worked on this book, which he asked for, every story that came in gave a different angle. Like even though I worked with him for decades, I didn't see every facet. And each facet gives us something to help us develop ourselves, our spiritual life, our ability to relate to others in ways that nourishes us. And that's pretty cool because not every rabbi I met in my life was so nourishing. <laughs> some, uh, some were and some weren't. He was always nourishing and interesting. There we are. It's very cold. I think I'm invoking this because it was 121 out there yesterday. So it was, it was very cold. And we were out in the uh, car because Reb Zalman was concerned about a woman who lived a few blocks away. And he wanted me to drive him. So I, we go to, I get in the car, I drive him. This is back, he had an IBM Commodore computer to give you a sense of how long ago it was that, you know, and how quickly things have, have transformed. And we went to, in the car to go to this lady's house because he told me he had to check on something. So he gets out of the car and slides along the ice that's on top of the four and a half feet of snow that's in the neighborhood that particular week. This was in Philadelphia. It's not every day you get that, but there it was. And he goes up to the house and he goes under the eaves of the house and he pulls out a long rod and he begins to chomp it on the ground. There was also a shovel there, he used that. And he's chomping on the ground and then he takes the rod and I see him lean over and he sticks it in and he pulls it out and it looks like he's doing like a dipstick with a car and he holds it up and he looks at it and then he's going like this and he puts it back and then it, it looks to me like he's doing something in the hole and he comes back on the ice to the car and slips and lands on his tush and goes sliding and he's giggling hysterically. I mean, this is a, you know, a mature, I mean, somebody who looks like this, right? <laughs> who is giggling hysterically. And I'm like, are you okay? Do you need me? Do you need my hand? No, no, I'm fine, Goldie Laban. He always called people beloved. Goldie Laban, I'm fine. And he manages to get back into the car. And it's his car we're driving. And then he takes, opens a box about this big and takes out something and he's holding it. And I see he's dialing. He's plugged it into the cigarette lighter and he's dialing on it and it's about this big. Do you remember when they were that big? Right? It was like, dum, 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 da, dum, bum, bum. Remember the trucking song? It looks, it's like that big. And he calls someone and says, hey, X, I remember the name. Hey, such and such. This is Zalman. I've got a woman who doesn't have oil for the winter. It's down to about two inches. She's going to freeze to death in there. I don't want her to know that I have anything to do with this. Can you take, here's the address. I want you to call the oil company, and I want you to use your credit card, and I want you to fill her tank with oil. Can you imagine getting that phone call? 
So here I am. I'm just, I've been a rabbi for like three minutes. I think I just finished rabbinical school. And I'm watching, and I'm watching him because I was assisting him. And the other guy on the other end of the phone doesn't even bat an eyelid. Just says, I'll be on it. There'll be some, I'll have somebody out there as soon as possible. I'll even, I can hear them. You know, I'll even talk to the supervisor to make sure a truck gets out there faster. And he hangs up. And I'm like, who was that? He said, oh, you're going to have to learn that you have to have people like that. Because to help people, you have to have resources. And every day with Reb Zalman was an experience of living a mitzvah-centered rather than a self-centered life. I think that that's the mission of the Jewish people, is to radiate that kind of energy. And don't we need it now? Right? To, to be able to radiate that in a way that people have an imprint that changes them. There's also, within the system of living a mitzvah-centered life, are the mitzvahs that relate to self the mitzvahs of self-care, not selfishness, right? But the mitzvahs of caring for the body, caring for the spirit, our, our connections in our relationships. He modeled ways to connect people that, and to connect to Judaism that I never saw in rabbinical school and had been looking for my whole life. Ways that the tradition can, we can be transformed in connection to it. And he was always non-coercive. He just listened to somebody and he had something for them. He would like pull a gem out and there it would be for you to have and treasure. So we're gonna get a chance to hear him and to look at some examples. But first, he worked with me on these mitzvah cards. This is probably three broken decks all stuffed together. This is what they look like normally. Because we were convinced that there needed to be a way to language Judaism that would make it accessible to our generation in a way that it changed our lives. So I'm going to send this around and invite you to pick three or four cards for yourself. See what's in the cards for you. Or as my son says, the cards are never wrong. <laughs> See what you get. When they come around, read the fine print. And I want to know if anybody has a question or a story about one of them. Did, did something, does something in your cards come to you that matters to who you are once it gets to you? You may be last, but you're going to have a lot of mitzvahs in your hand. <laughs> And can anybody want to read from yours in a way? How is it written differently that makes it a spiritual way of expressing it versus just a conventional way of expressing it? Yes. Guard your house. Uh, 
Yep. So you felt a shift from taking care of the body. You could like, some people can take it or leave it, but if it has a purpose. Right, if you're not taking care of yourself, you're not helping God. And that phrase, that quote from, that's a quote from Reb Zalman. The body is the instrument on which the soul plays life for God. He told me that it's a Jewish, an old Jewish aphorism, an old saying. But when I work with teenagers and I say to them, I hand that to them, the body is the instrument on which the soul plays life for God. And I say, how are you doing with your Stradivarius or your Fender guitar, whatever their referent is? And they begin to think about their body as a sacred instrument and that they're playing the song of their life and that it's actually got... The, the idea of a witness doesn't have to be that there is a witness in God, but if we live that way, then it helps us to align with what we might hope to get to. Does anyone have a different interpretation on that or, or a card you want to share? You look questioning. No? <laughs> no? Okay. All right. Yes. They're all beautiful cards, and the more I look at the ones that um, came to me, uh, the difference in my interpretation happens. Uh, one of them is Daka, and I like how it's worded, give responsibility. And it's very, very important uh, how often it is for us to try to do for others but not encourage them to do for themselves. So you feel in the cards the sense of connection and interdependence. Anyone else? Is this what you learned in Hebrew school? No. no. Does it apply? Does what you got in your hand apply to your life? It does apply to your life. And that's what Reb Zaman was about. It's what I'm about. The opportunity to have a Jewish lens for, ha for living in every minute that nourishes life, that expands it, that enriches it, is the Judaism I was looking for. And I hope that it, it connects for you and that maybe with Rav Shmuley, you can take a look at how to use these in your, in your work and in your life. I, I gave them to my grandchildren recently and every week they, they call me and they pick one out of the deck and they either tell me a story based on the one they pulled out or they ask a question. And it, it's very, um, it's an easy way to engage with them. It gets the conversation going. And now they, they'll pull one and they'll say, before we hang up, Grandma, I'm going to pull one and that's going to be my assignment for, for the week. And when I see you, I'm going to have a story for you because they know I love stories. And I'm proud of them in that way. But as an adult, I put it next to my Shabbos candles and I turn one over each week and invite my guests to engage with them. And I wanted you to see a little bit of how his work looks. 
and, and his work with me on, on that. And now we, I just put them into Russian and into um, Dutch. And we have uh, Rabbi Nilton Bonder is putting them into Portuguese. And we're looking for someone to do Spanish and really high quality literary Hebrew. And we, we're hoping to nourish the Jewish people that we would know that the mission of a Jew is to live a mitzvah-centered life. Can you say that with me? A mitzvah-centered life rather than a self-centered life. And yes? I have a, a story. Oh, please. OK. Um, I attended a workshop um, that was at the home of Sharona and um, Daniel Feller years ago when he was here. And we stood out on the grass, and we each said the Shema. And he invited us to say it in our own way. All together, we were saying the Shema in our own way. It was brilliant. It's powerful, right? He has another approach to the Shema where you say it three times. Once, conventionally. Once, with, you envision someone who you wish was with you here today or in shul or at your Shabbos table, someone who you wish, not because they're dead, but because they're disconnected. And you say their name in the Shema. And then the third time, you say it with your name, Shema Goldie, right? And it, it was called the threefold Shema. I use it when I lead services a lot because there's a power there of asking ourselves to listen, of reaching out and calling out, so envision, do you know this from the, when, I studied, when I worked with the Jews in Cochin, they take their, they put a shin on their forehead. Have you seen it? A shin for Shekhinah and for Shema. And it's on the third eye, as the Hindus call it, because they're in India. And it'll help, it can help you to focus your Shema. Hmm. So let's do it first a conventional, a regular Shema, and let, let this focus, let it go in. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hmm. Now keep this prayer of the unity of all being and envision that person that you would like to bring in. And think of their name, and we'll do it softly. Shema Ari Adonai Eloheinu Adonai and just imagine them coming to be beside you. And for the last one, when do we say the Shema? We say it in the services, but we also say it when we go to sleep at night. And that means you're putting a mezuzah on the doorpost of your dreams. And you're listening for the voice of God in the messages that your dreams bring you. So when you say the Shema at night, imagine that you're putting that mezuzah up there. But we also say it at the end of our life 
and we put a mezuzah up on the doorpost of our life. And we don't leave this world listening to the bings and the bongs of the machines. We leave listening into the mystery to so that our soul can discover what's going to come next. So allow yourself to have that place where you're gonna call your own name and feel yourself called. Shema Goti Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Just take some breaths of life. And exhale with a yah, like hallelujah. Yah is a small Hebrew name for God. Yah. Yah. Allow yourself to sit down. And if you're taking any notes, just put a few notes in your spiritual treasure chest about a little bit of a Reb Zalman experience. Does anyone have any reflections about that? So I want to show you what Reb Zalman's like in the flesh. We're going to play a piece of video of him. And then we're going to be doing some reading from the book so that you'll be able to hear his, the experiences of, all of, of many of his students. So this woman is asking the question, what is the address when you are praying? She says, I know that it's inside of me and that God arises inside of me and it's all inside of me and I should recognize that it's me. Uh, but what is the address of my prayer? Because, and she's confused. And this is Reb Zalman giving a very Reb Zalman answer. Well, let me go back for a moment to what I said about the ego, okay? There's transparent and there's translucent. The ego likes to be more translucent than transparent. Uh, sometimes it becomes totally opaque, but sometimes it's translucent. And when it's translucent, uh, um, some light gets through. But sometimes the translucent thing acts as if it were the source of light. Get the idea? When you're saying, right, on the one hand, your brain wouldn't operate, your mind wouldn't operate, you wouldn't be conscious if God keep, didn't keep all this machinery going for you, okay? So you say it's me, then the ego takes over and says, it's all what I spin in my head, okay? What would be if you were to own the fact Then what happens is you're making space, as it were, in front of you. 
that one needs garments, as it were. Now let me spell this one out a little more. William James, great psychologist, philosopher, came to a town in New England and talked to the deacons there in the church and asked them, what do you do? How do you place yourself in the presence of God? How do you do that? And this guy says to him, I envision myself in the presence of an oblong blur. No, the heart has no connection to an oblong blur. He was trying to be reasonable and he was trying to be an iconic. I don't want to make give God any shape. I'm not talking about giving God a physical shape. And so when Professor Heschel was talking about that very same thing, he says, it is not that we ascribe to God um, anthro, what is it? Morphism. But anthropopathy, that's to say that the feelings that we feel, God has them too. That creation is something that God loves us into life. That aspect of the friend, the lover, is something we put out. But it's like an altar. It becomes a God trap, as it were. It attracts divinity. And the, the more you see devout people in their devotional thing, you have a sense how divinity is attracted to them. They're projecting. You begin with a projection. And when you say, I've said the Lord before me always, that's a projection. That projection gets filled somehow. And you get a sense, sometimes Ramakrishna talked about this, that there was a, a statue of Kali, but Kali wasn't there. And then he began to, to pray until Kali came and, and inhabited the statue. I can understand that, can you see? And for us, it comes in the form of those names that we have for God. So when we call Hanachaman, like we, when we, when the compassionate, the merciful one, we are putting out, this is the attribute of which I want to meet you, God. And what happens is, because that is not outside of God, it attracts God energies that fit that attribute. And my transactions are with that one. But I, if I think about this mentally, I have transactions with God attribute, da, 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 you know? It doesn't work, but when I say, you loving, compassionate one, I want to tell you what's, what, what's bugging me, okay? You see, there's a big problem. Today, we are conscious of our consciousness. <laughs> so, you also have to be able to understand what you're doing in order to experience. That's what I'm talking about, you know? So that's Reb Zaman. So has, have you experienced with someone explaining how, how spirit works, spiritual technology like that? What did you think? What, did you what do you take from it, those who could take from it? <laughs> The idea that you bring upon yourself those attributes that you think are um, what you call upon God to bring it to you. So, in a sense, you're restricting what what God is in some ways, but you're trying to propel yourself um, 
certain attributes that you're giving to God. And it may change day to day, moment to moment, and you may be calling yourself to. So that ability of humans to project, but have the projection come back in a way that's nourishing because it's part of the energy of creation is something that Reb Zalman made safe for us, that we could actually experience that love by asking for it. Does that sound crazy to some of you, or is it something you, you live with? You live with it. You get it. Yes. I like the idea a lot, and it reminds me a lot of the early mother-infant bonding, you know, an infant can suffer, cry, and make noises of touch, and the mother responds in a loving way, and then vice versa, there's a reciprocity between child and parent, which is a beautiful model for us and God, uh, as a parent and a child, that the love is reciprocal. That the love is reciprocal. Because if we walk in disappointment instead of walking with the expectation of attracting divinity in the form of love, which could come from you to me, right? It could come from anywhere or it could be experienced as an ambient sense that I live with and receive. It, it, it changes the quality of our day and of our life. I had a, a student who was going to be a rabbinical student who was assigned, who drew out of a jar the assignment to work at a, a soup kitchen. And the, I was, my husband and I were on the beach, and the student came up to us in California, where we happened to be, and said, I need a counseling session. What am I supposed to do? They told me my job will be to answer the door and welcome people coming to the soup kitchen. And I don't know what to say. Should I ask them? All about their life was his first sentence. You know, should I, should I tell them about myself? Should we exchange names and learn each other? You know, the student was all totally in a state of complete anxiety. And I said, well, what would you want if you were coming to a soup kitchen? And how would you want to be received? I said, because imagine that you're slipping on a an attribute of source, of God, of godliness, of divinity. Imagine you're slipping it on, and how would you receive that person at the door? What, what would you want to have? And, this, and he looked at me and says, well, I'd want to feel a warm and welcoming presence, and I'd want to get to my meal really soon. Right? Because it's the way we go about entering into it that transforms the encounter. And it's our consciousness, because if it's just me, I might start chatting with somebody at the door instead of really placing myself from a guide's eye point of view on how to engage. So based on what we just saw, I want to invite you to turn to page 22. And at the bottom, who would like to read? Who has a strong voice? Go for it. Yes, thank you. God's name is ineffable, Rabbi Zalman taught, a name that can only be pronounced by breath, by living fully alive, by paying attention to our breath, to the expansion and contraction of our chest, 
to the give and take, to the rush of the waves approaching and receding from the shore, to the razzo and the shove, the attraction and repulsion as we encounter the Kadush Hashem, that awesome and awful sensation of the great silence, the silence of the one. So I'm going to invite you to form two groups of two and do a little chavruta with this and come back with something you harvest from it or a question that you have that it brings up for you. So I'll, I'll give an example. Let's see. We've got two and two and, well, let's see. If we don't, if we, they're going to each other clearly. Two, two. We've got two here and two there. And so, so I'll take, uh, will you be my partner? Will you be my partner? <laughs> so here's how it works. Do you do Havruta here often? Do you study in partners? No. It's so, that, so this is a cool thing, and Reb Zalman did it a lot. So you read a few words, and then the person who's reading them hears that what it means to the person who's listening. And then the person who was reading them can say, and what I got from it is the following, until you make it to the end. But it's not an express train. It's not a, ru a rush. It's a spiritual opportunity to go deeper. And, it, and this is a strong paragraph. And if you, Ratsov, I want to talk about the idea of Ratsova Shove before you get started. You know on a candle flame, how when there's a breeze, the candle moves and then it comes back? So the tradition says our soul is like that candle flame. We're always being pulled towards something and then coming back to the wick, coming back to our body, to the center. And that going and coming is our nature and the nature of our soul. And, of course, and you may know that a candle is, the, is, why do we use it for yard site or on Shabbos? All the sim, the, a candle is the symbol for the soul in Judaism. And so anytime you've, even on, on Shabbos, one candle is your soul and the other is your connection, your divine connection. And, and the tradition says that the candle, that our soul is the Shabbos candle for, for God, for the source. So you're never alone, even when we're lighting the candles on our own, if we're, like I was single for a long time living on my own, I always felt like I said, Dita, the source and that I was not alone. I had the candle that was my partner. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. How, did that go? How many of you had a, had a good experience? Okay. Well, the, one of the things about Reb Zalman is he didn't dumb things down. Many of us, our Jewish education wasn't, it didn't give us the nourishment we needed. You know what I mean. It was language. It was language. Mm -hmm. Here, he, in, somehow in what he said, what did you notice? Was he giving you an experience? He was giving you an experience about connecting to the divine 
and, and sort of giving a map of how to get there. What, what happened? Does anybody want to share what happened for you? Yes? When I was reading it out loud for the first time, it, it almost took my breath away when I, it said the contraction and the expansion of the chest and the, the breath coming in and the breath going out and the waves coming in and the waves going out. It, it was a very um, surreal feeling. Mm. How, what's your name? Shamati Judy. So that means I'm putting mezuzah up on the doorpost of your words as they enter my soul. Will you join me? Shamati Judy. Thank you. Would someone like to build on that or, or add from your own experience? God is in the breath. The, the name is ineffable. The, the name is ineffable. That if you breathe, it is in the breathing that we are the language of God. We, in our breath, become an expression. It's a big, it's a big awareness. Either that or you're going to pass out. <laughs> <laughs> what you just gave us a hit of is a very kind of high thing. Thank you. Thank you. Say your name for the group. Carl Hammerschlag. Carl Hammerschlag. Shamati Carl. As you were uh, sharing, Carl, I could feel my own breath uh, opening and closing. And you also put your hand to the top of your head and um, I guess the crown area. And when you did that, I got chills. Thank you. And send it that way? It's not a cult, so you can just pass it or you can hold it and say something. It's just an opportunity. <laughs> when we were reading the first part of the paragraph, I was a little taken with it. But then it seemed like it was driving towards the conclusion at the end, talking about the great silence. And to me, then, the focus of the breath, the in and the out, and the chest, to me, that was a distraction from the one. Uh -huh. so, wait, the, say your name, please. David. Shamati David. So it felt like a distraction when you got to that. First, there was this breath held you, and then, oh, but we're really going here. Yes. Okay. I'm Marty Schlock. Thank you for what you were, were saying, just to uh, pick up on, on what I heard Carl say. For me, the, it's not only the inhalation and the exhalation, but it's the pause between the two. And, and that space between the inhalation and the exhalation seems to be a space of the divine for me. Mm. And I'm trying to understand that space between the inhalation and the exhalation. And in that space, it might be before words. Pre-verbal. Pre There's a holiness in that. Before we tell ourselves the story and explain it, 
There's the knowing that is pure. Does that sound right? The knowing without knowing, in a way. Yeah. That the space is both empty and full at the same time. In the Torah, it says that when Moshe and Hashem were talking to each other, whether in communication, it was like a cave where the water went in and out, and the Torah just flowed, and there was no differentiation. And do you know what Moshe spells backwards? Hashem. And there's no words there, right? <laughs> the phrase, paying attention to the breath, is very meaningful to me. I think paying attention to every moment is meaningful. But I like to awaken in the morning paying attention to the breath. And uh, I've studied something called Jinshin Jitsu. And the teacher, Mayor Burmeister, taught us to hug ourselves and breathe in and out 36 times in the morning. Paying attention to the breath. Thank you. And your name is? Pina. Pinna, Shamati Pinna, paying attention to the breath. And say your name again? Jennifer. Jennifer. So this chord about the tension, and I'm glad you look. We were going to go there where you went with it, and I'm really glad you found such mm -hmm. a beautiful articulation of where he was He's showing the, the Hasidic understanding that you so beautifully researched and brought to us in what he's trying to share. This, what do they call it? A... There's a word for it when you have to synthesize when you have to when a synthesis and the office when you when they come together. I, I lost the word from philosophy, but thank you. It's it, it explains something about us in a poetic way that doesn't have to make converge with science. It's the poetry of our lives and our soul. And uh, wait, we didn't say your name again, Jennifer. Shamati Jennifer. And? So I was thinking um, a little bit about more of what we were talking about. And I was thinking about how when you meditate and you are relaxing, and I always felt that with meditation, 
there was a connection to the spirit, my spirit. And being able to breathe in and out and focus on that makes me feel a greater connection to myself. And in a relaxed state, being able to be have greater awareness, not only of myself, but also the air around me. And if that ends up reflecting the spirit of a connection with God, that passage maybe means more to me that way. Mm. Say your name for the group. My name is Holly. Shamati Holly. So we took a topic. Oh. By all means. Maybe I can project easier without a moment. I, I am, as you can tell, having some difficulty with breathing. I am getting shorter of breath. And uh, I am still feeling fully alive. But the expansion and contraction of my breathing has become clearly more aware to me. But there is a piece of me that feels marginally alive, right? Struggling for my breath while at the same time appreciating the moment. So am I fully alive? This is a very profound statement here. Am I fully alive? I am fully engaged in the moment. I am in the here and now, and sometimes I cannot breathe, which makes it difficult to be in the moment. And living has something to do with being totally engaged where you are with a sense of anticipation, not only of your next breath, but the next possibility, that somehow it doesn't matter how shallow or how deeply one breathes, simply that the awareness of one's breath puts us in touch not only with our humanity, but our shared humanity, and to pay more attention to the breathing that's there rather than the breathing that's not. Moshe Waldox is an old friend as well, so that the, the passage has some special meaning. He was the funniest rabbi I ever knew. And, and there Moshe brought us, he didn't even put his funny in, right? He brought us to the great silence in combination with awareness of the poignance of life and breath that you've just brought us. It's, it's, it, that was Zalman, right? He really, Reb Zalman, you'll see throughout this book, it, it, you, you can't like read it all at once. You have to take a piece and live with it. Maybe find a friend to study that, pe that piece with if you wish. And things begin to open up that we hadn't had the chance to think through before, most of us because our journey wasn't, didn't have somebody who could do this. So it's quite amazing to me. Let's turn to page 42. So if you look at um, number 20, 220 there, will somebody read? I just want to do something a little lighter for a second. <laughs> I heard someone ask Rev Zalman if he was a theoretical Kabbalist or a practical Kabbalist, and he answered, a practical Kabbalist. And then he added, I only mean the opposite of the practical Kabbalist. Right? 
you have to think about it for a minute, right? I'm, I only mean the opposite of an impractical Kabbalist. Thank you for reading. It's like he had that kind of sense of humor that he didn't take it all so seriously in a way. He understood that it's the poetry of existence that we're working with here. Um, somebody do the next one. Green Red Bowman's Mystery School. He dedicated one complete weekend to expressing our anger at God. He said, how can you ever come to love Hashem if you don't have the kind of honest relationship where you can let Hashem know how angry you are that he, she allowed six million innocent people to be murdered without intervening? He used all the expressive therapy techniques he knew that weekend, like primal screaming. And he demonstrated with his own screaming at God. Sure enough. Have, have any of you ever done that? Allow yourself to go all the way with the fullness of the frustration of whether it's the Shoah or just being alive and dealing with things we go through. The, so he sees it and taught it as a Jewish spiritual practice, as in Hasidism. I, I, I used to take people, when I teach Yit Bodedut, which means to make yourself alone with God, Bodeid, to be alone. I, I take B'nai Mitzvah families and I send each member of the family out into the woods and I say, I want you, you have to get your kiddush cup emptied out of your life if you want to refill with spirit and to know how to do that so that otherwise you can become pretty toxic or dangerous to your own self if everything's clogged up. But you don't have to spend all the money on a therapist every time. You can go outside into the woods and just start doing a niggin, a, a humming or singing, and then let it pour out. Just let it all come out. And then go back to the humming or the singing, and then more will come. And then do it again, and more will come. And when you're emptied out, that's when you can refill with spirit. And sometimes you'll see something that your soul will project onto, and you'll get a message that comes back that helps process what's been going on. And Reb Zalman used to send us out to do that. And here, he's really applying it here in one of, because he was a survivor. He was under the, in the camps under the Vichy French. And he needed a way to do that. And I want to encourage you to take time for yourself to do the spiritual practices that allow us to empty out. Because it feels a lot better, doesn't it? Than having... Holding up, like I, get, I have PTSD from something that happened when I was young. But if I go out into the forest and I just let everything out and I empty, I've discovered the PTSD will go away. Might come back, somebody could trigger it, but at least it's nice not to have for a while. Look at number 22. Rep Solomon, I said on the phone, I need help. I'm angry. What are you angry about? It doesn't matter what I'm angry about, I said. I don't want to be angry. It's not very spiritual. Ah, he responded. Sometimes there is a good reason to be angry, and anger is the right response, and the right response is spiritual. Anybody want to give pushback on that? What do you think? Yes. 
option to have, but I think in society people frown on it and don't want you to be angry, but it means a boundary has been crossed or something, you know, something has been done that's not appropriate and so it's okay to look at anger and if it's used appropriately, it's going to be a really good tool to figure out healthy boundaries. And he just... So this idea of anger is a way to figure out your healthy boundaries. I, th I love how you express that. And does Reb Salman give you permission that you would use here? What wisdom is there in the room about wielding your anger? Do you think he's suggesting that we shed it on others? Or is he, use is he offering a different process? I'll expand on what's written here. He said that anger is a missed appointment with an expectation, a disappointment, a missed appointment with an expectation. And that working it out as though there's a listening God or if there is a listening God or if there is a listening, doesn't matter. From a Gestalt point of view, it works anyway. By working it out and letting it out, you're going to find a way to understand where it's coming from and be able to transform what could potentially toxify a, a relationship further. Because if your boundary's been crossed and we come back with anger, instead of coming back and saying, I'm disappointed at what happened and I want us to look at it, you know, because I, I had an appointment with you in my heart. We're in my spirit, and it didn't work. So with some people, that can turn it around and open up what, what was Web Zaman called it the God field, that we are co-creating the God field and how we treat each other. Does that fit with what you were thinking? So let's go to, you could see I like a lot. I, I'm a little enthusiastic about <laughs> things in here. I marked up so many for today. We'll never get to hardly any. If you look at page 77, now you've heard the word Kabbalah. So it means to receive. And a mikubal is someone who, when they pray, they're like a radio, you know, like they can receive. And you start to see some people really can get into, get into what they're doing. And when he would teach the students, you can see here, somebody start with during May 2014 there. During the May 2014 Shavuot retreat in Isabella Freedom Retreat Center, at the last session, Reb Salman spoke about governing authentic, heartfelt prayer. He showed erudition, erudition, humor, sensitivity, and drive in how he was able to speak, even with tubes, feeding oxygen through his nose. Then at the very end, he removed the oxygen, stood up, came down off the stage, and stood before us. Reb Zaltman, Devonology instructions to the 200-some people present were brief. Just stand up, put your talus over your head, and speak to God out loud.
from your heart. Continue? Yeah. I positioned myself near him and covered my head with the tallest for the first time. No words came, too self-conscious. Reb Salman was playing, praying in a combination of Yiddish, English, and Hebrew. Hearing him, I began to cry and call out to God from the place of my deepest yearning. On Shabbat morning of 2005, Shavuot retreat, the original Elat Chaim, Reb Zalman, led services. It was my first experience of him. The service was thoughtful, joyful, and filled with group energy. So we have here Reb Zalman modeling davening. Imagine if we, all the synagogues we go into over the course of a life for bar mitzvahs and services and high holidays, what if we did that? What if we allowed a complete, do any of you have a place that you pray where you're, you have that complete and open freedom that you feel you can take it and do it? Then maybe we can be part of continuing him by making that possible. Could you imagine just being a free, alive Jew in the davening? It's very powerful to have a real relationship that you can call out through. How does that feel? What does that sound like to you? Impossible? Possible? Does it seem off base? Unconventional. Unconventional? Yeah. Freeing. Unconventional. More words? Yeah. I'm a singer, and one thing I love to do is express through wordless chant. And for me, that is that sense of going very deep with something that's free. So the nigun, the, word, the wordless chant, makes it possible for you. That's your soul, the language of your soul. Right? We used to use Aramaic because that's what the language of the people were. Even though the text might have been Hebrew, everybody's language of their soul was Aramaic. Now it's English. Good. <laughs> you know, it should come. It should bubble up. If you had to learn Hebrew before you could express... What's coming up your kiddush cup? You know, you might not make it. <laughs> so that's and to be able to do it with a niggin is powerful. Do you want to do a? Do you, is it easy for you to do a little niggin here, and invite people in?
do a line and you do a line, the same line, just to get that feeling. Or would anyone like to do their own? You'd start there. So, I I was that beautiful, but inviting you to do that is just what Reb Zalman would have done, right? He looked in the room for what are the talents here that can lift us higher, that can strengthen us and nurture us. He didn't need to be the show. He wanted all of us to have a noble seat around the campfire of our people and serve the world, not just our people, but serve the world through the talents that we have. So I thank you so much for being so beautifully forthcoming. Can you, f you could feel that the song of the soul, whether you're in the forest or, bless you, in a ballroom or something, it, it's, it, it takes us. It took us with you. And we can pray that way too. Let's turn to page 128. This is a moment in Jewish history that probably had not happened earlier uh, anywhere. And if you look at where it says the Zohar says, I'll read it for you. The Zohar says that the throne of glory weeps at the dissolution of a first marriage. Yet many of us that take that action, even after successful years together, so that we can move forward on a new path. This is Rabbi Leah Novick writing. After 27 years in a good marriage, a few years of separation and a secular divorce, I asked my husband for a get, which is Hebrew for a religious divorce process and documents that are vital should one wish to remarry under Jewish auspices. Knowing my concerns about gender bias in that process, he was surprised by my request. He agreed, feeling it was my need as a potential, a potential lineage holder of the Jewish spiritual path. Ironically, I thought it might help him with his Orthodox family, especially if he remarried. It's talking about um, the person she was married to. For the ceremony, I flew from San Francisco to Philadelphia with Reb Zalman as he was nearby in California at the time. Upon arriving at Peneora, his headquarters in those days, surprisingly, Reb Zalman had set up two documents and two sets of witnesses, male and female. Despite my discomfort at not having an integrated approach, he insisted on having one signed by males only in case I would marry outside of liberal Judaism one day. The writing, signing, and ceremony took all day culminating in the reading and burning of letters 
we each wrote describing the positives we had received from the marriage. Now, that's probably in the 70s that she's talking about. The idea that the get could be egalitarian. What do you notice in it? What were the main ideas that struck you? Yes? The idea that um, each of the parties is giving something to the, to the um, universe about what they gained from that marriage. So, they give, so you saw that as giving something to the universe. When they burned it, they released its energy and gave it back to the universe. And anything, thank you. And anything else that struck anyone? I, I found it interesting that she was the one that wanted to get, and he was the orthodox one. She was not. I found that interesting. She wanted to get. She wanted to make sure she had an open future, and that he especially would have an open future, so that they would do it in accordance with the tradition in some way. And how about Reb Zalman pulling separate? It never happened probably ever before up to that point that there, were, uh, there was a female set of witnesses and male witnesses, and he used to write uh, uh, let the, uh, two gets to, to put that together. So that was a, a really an example of his creativity and his ability to see us for who we are and not lock us into an old paradigm. You know, he, now, in my case, when I asked him, if he would do my get. If you go to um, the next page, and I said, Reb Zalman, would you be comfortable doing a get for me and my soon-to-be husband? I like to make up words. You know, he's not an ex-husband. Who crossed him out, you know? <laughs> the husband. He cracked up at the new word as he had at other words I'd invented, like Hubbardson and feminal and infeminine. How could I have a seminal idea? Who put it there, right? <laughs> so I'd never asked Reb Zalman for professional help before. I'd been working for him for years, but I always looked at myself as like a works, an unpaid work stu study student helping a great professor. You know, I didn't, I didn't think of him as my Rebbe or anything. I was a Reconstructionist feminist rabbi, right? But I was working for this amazing person. And so, he, and he was my favorite teacher in rabbinical school. So Reb Zaman then said, here's how it'll go. You'll bring some friends and colleagues. I'll secure a scribe for the get. He said, I could do the writing, but there's someone in training I'd like to observe. And while we do this, I want you to learn how to officiate a get with a scribe involved. Okay? So he was constantly teaching as he was doing. And if he thought you had the potential for anything, he would draw you right in. Like, you know how when we were sitting and it wasn't necessarily what you originally wanted? But when you get the vibe that somebody's got it, he would just welcome it. You know, I was trying to model that. It worked, fortunately. And a terrific person. And I would, and I want you to, he said, and I would need you to make sure that there are male colleagues present, he told me. He didn't know who he was messing with. <laughs> Why male and not assorted genders? 
Reb Zalman explained the importance of Jewish documents being designed to be taken as valid across the spe spectrum of Jewish life and how an egalitarian get could affect the ability of either of us to marry outside of a liberal Jewish context and a few other complications. I continued to advocate for full gender inclusion. I told him that my soon-to-be husband would not be present and instead accept his copy by a shaliach, by an emissary, which is a classic thing. You can send the document through an emissary. But used to, historically, it was from the male to the female, right? Not the way we were doing. Eventually, he sighed and said, I bridge two worlds, the old and the new, and serve a unique function. So I can't do it the way you suggest, Goldie. I can't. I sometimes have had two women write out their own, asked women to write out their own document of release while the formal get was being done because he thought that, that if a woman was writing her own get while the scribe was doing the one that counted, that, the, that it would help her to release what she was carrying, the burden she was carrying. So then he asked me, would you like to do that? I want document the screech that I made at that moment, but <laughs> I said, psycho-spiritually, wouldn't it be better for both partners to the marriage to create their own document? Right? Why just the woman to get her stuff? Why not each of them create their document as an exercise while the scribe creates one unified get? And I continued, Reb Zalman, I understand the position you find yourself in, and I'm glad you were able to, willing to do it. And given the circumstances, I think it'll be better, since I'm a feminist rabbi and not a Rebbe, to call upon a colleague who will be able to use a fully inclusive, egalitarian document and ritual. There's so much else we can do together. Let's just continue the way we've always been. But look at this mensch. Look what he does next. He says... Thank you for understanding, Goldie Laban. Let me know what you design as your ritual. I'm curious, and with your permission, I will appropriate whatever I can within the constraints I have set for myself. So he opened up. He couldn't do it. He couldn't be the masader, the facilitator, but he could explore what we all were beginning to open up and do with ritual in those days, and he could bring some of it in to make a more enlightened space that he was functioning in. Yes? Um, why couldn't he have two sets of gets that he did with um, Rev Leia? Is that not acceptable or is that not an option? He wanted to have it be, um, once you had a, a male Orthodox rabbi's signature on things and male witnesses, then it would go across the spectrum of Jewish life. And he wasn't ready to have his name associated with shifting on that. Later in life, he was. But at this point in his development, it would have closed him off from places that he, that he was very welcome in. Mine was after Reb Leia, and I, that's why I couldn't do it. But the, one that, the second one he was doing with her was not, would, would not count as a get anywhere. It was intended to be a, a release, a document of release, but he didn't call it a get. And you were like, I want to get, okay, I 
I want an official egalitarian. Um, sure. Now, one of the things about Reb Zalman was he was always, what time do we have to finish? Around now? Okay. So let's, I want, I want to do a closing thing. Um, let me find the right page. I'll tell you, the, book, the books are $20. They're on, online for $25. Through Amazon, I'm selling, they're $20 each tonight. And the mitzvah cards, I have a box of them. I don't know if it's enough for everybody, but they're usually 18 and I sell them on the road for $10 each. But let's finish in this way. On page 94, please rise. So we were talking about God's name when we started. I always do these, every single one of these book openings, I've used different entries in the book. So it's interesting for me to see what will happen, you know, do, using different ones each time. He talked about how each of the letters of the divine name yud Hey vav Hey, the Tetragrammaton, represent what you may have heard of as the four worlds or in Gestalt psychotherapy, right? The physical world, the emotional world, the intellectual world, and the spiritual world. So at the top, the Yud, the transcendent spiritual place, it is perfect. Like a God's eye point of view, right? Maybe not the way we see the world, but an it is perfect. The next one is you are loved. Oh, it, it's actually the other way around. I apologize. So in the physical world, it is perfect, the gift that we received. You are loved. All is clear in the intellectual realm where like you can just sort of see and not know, but know. And then, and I am holy. In other words, we're representing source. And through the connection, we become holy. So it goes like this. It is perfect, you are loved, all is clear, and I am holy. And each of you do it to your partner. Give that over three times and let it cook in you so that the way you express it to the other person deepens and ripens and you really receive. Take it in, because it's true. And then switch. And if you want to move around the room and do it and just come back for a little blessed closing blessing, you can, but, or you can stay right here. It is perfect. You are loved. All is clear. And I am holy. Okay, so it's going to be my row doing it, and this row is receiving. And we're going to do it three times, and then we're going to receive from you. Because I don't want you to miss out on receiving. It's special. It's a special thing. One of his things. Ready? Center yourself. Balance. Get ready to receive from your partner. You don't have to look down if you're receiving. You can just be with us. It is perfect. You are loved, all is clear, and I am holy. It is perfect, you are loved, all is 
You are loved, all is clear, and I am holy. So I want to bless you. You know, they didn't really do it like this. The priests, I found out at the Hebrew University last year that they did it like this so that they could focus on each face and put, send the blessing. Isn't that cool? They started finding stones like this and realized, well, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> I like, that. like that. So I bless each of you to delight in your spiritual journey, grow and explore and question and play, and have spiritual friends to study with, learn with, explore with. And if you ever want to be in touch, be in touch. And may you be blessed to get to know Reb Solomon. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.